I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern-Laff. Welcome to Ethical Schools, where we discuss strategies for creating inclusive and equitable schools and youth programs that help students to develop both commitment and capacity to building ethical institutions. Our guest today is Jose Luis Jimenez, Principal of the ACE Academy for Scholars at the Geraldine Ferraro campus in District 24, Queens. Mr. Jimenez is a PhD student in urban education, an adjunct lecturer at Brooklyn College, and a registered yoga teacher. He is a Deeper Learning Leadership Forum Fellow, a Khan Fellow for Distinguished Principals, a Deeper Learning Equity Fellow, a National Institute for Latinx School Leaders Policy Fellow, and a Steering Committee member of the Proud Teacher Initiative, a network of LGBTQIA educators. Welcome, Jose. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. Jose, would you tell us a bit about the ACE Academy? ACE Academy for Scholars is a pre-K to five elementary school located in Ridgewood, Queens. Fortunate enough to have been one of its founding teachers in fourth grade and then became the school leader. And I'm also uh, a resident of the community. I live uh, very close by, which is a great asset. And it's a very diverse community, racially, ethnically, uh, linguistically, and that, that brings a lot of strengths to the school setting, having so many different walks of life in one building. As a queer principal of color in an elementary school, you chose to come out to your students. How did you do this, and why was it important for you to do it? So my first year as a principal, it was around Pride Month, and I, I knew I wanted to, to celebrate Pride and, and have, have it be visible in the school. I had been part of the Proud Teacher Initiative at this point, which is a, a network of uh, LGBTQIA plus educators sort of taking steps towards self-disclosing their identities in schools for the purpose of being the role models that we didn't have when we were in school, having that visibility and representation. And I, having become a, a, a principal, I, I struggled with how I would come out to an entire community when I don't have a class that I see every day, sort of those relationships that a teacher would have. And we started making a bulletin board and one of the, the teachers that was putting it together and with some students, they, when I was looking at them putting it up, they said that they had left the center for my picture. Um, and in a split moment, I just realized, you know, that was, what I was waiting for, the opportunity or the uh, how I was going to do it just kind of happened. In retrospect, it's something that if I trace back to why I became an educator and my own story, I became an educator for the, these same reasons, which is to, to be better, to be better than what I had, than my experience being a queer child in school and not having sort of somebody say that it's okay. And even though for a long time I thought I was doing that by picking books that might be more representative of different opinions and perspectives, I still wasn't being my true authentic self and bringing that identity into the classroom. As a school leader, I felt I had to take that step to make it possible for everybody else in terms of letting teachers know that you don't have to check your 
your multiple identities at the door when you enter this building. So what did you, what did you actually put on the bulletin board? So the bulletin board included figures in LGBTQ history, a lot of people of color that, um, you know, of whose shoulders we stand on around the LGBT rights movement. And it, it included little blurbs about what contributions they made. And then it also had books that families could read with their children about different topics and the history of the flag, how the the rainbow flag came to be. And so my picture just included a little blurb about why I became an educator and who I am. And so that was, I was up there with, with other uh, influencers, um, historical influencers, which was an honor. Do you have a picture of it? We'd love to post it um, on our website. Yes, I do have a picture. Okay, so please send it and we'll be happy to share it with people. Excellent. Yeah. So you've said that queer educators of color tend to be more culturally responsive. Why is that? I think there's a sort of an understanding when you've, you've been at some point on the margins, whether it's recognizing that stories that you're, you're listening to or conversations that occur in the classroom don't include you. It could be a comment that is said and a teacher kind of dismisses it or ignores it or says that's not really for right now or you know sends messages that that school might not be the the place for for certain conversations or topics and if you're if you're somebody that is sort of uh, identifying with 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 these kind of differences you are looking you, you almost become hyper aware of of what's socially acceptable uh, or deemed, you know, quote unquote, normal. And so as an educator, I think you're seeing a time, many times children that are going through trauma, that are facing these same challenges. And, and there's a, an instinctual desire to, to, to be better, to do, to do differently. And, and I think it, it shows up in the type of literature that those teachers will select, that queer educators of color will select, the maybe more courageous conversations that they would have around, you know, racial topics, uh, representation, queer identity. And there's a level of, of risk that I think goes with that, or has historically. I think we're seeing a shift towards more culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogies being accepted. Definitely the New York State has, has taken a stand and as well as New York City, but still facing controversy. And nationwide, this is something that the research has been pointing to for many years, but districts are, are, are sort of behind on why centering culture and its many definitions of, of what culture means in the classroom would benefit all children. And sort of decentering the the dominant narrative would actually allow for more critical thinking and diverse perspectives. So, following up on that, as you know and, and just referred to, New York State issued the culturally responsive sustaining education framework early this year, and Chancellor Carranza has been actively implementing CRS as it's known in shorthand. Um, what does culturally responsive education mean in relation to gender diversity and sexual identity? in an elementary school? 
Thank you. That's a, a great question. I I know that for for many, this is something that it's, it's it's of a new arena. LGBTQ topics in in elementary school, what that could look like. Teachers College published a, a book recently called Reading Reading the Rainbow, and and in one of its opening chapters, it talks about how one of the sort of fears is that, you know, are kids ready? Is this, is this a appropriate age to talk about this topic? And they kind of flip it on, are we ready? Is the educator ready to have um, these conversations more than the students themselves to, to actually hear it? And I think that that's a part of our of identity, of, of a culture, of a, uh, history, narratives that, that can be, if not explored and not, not introduced at an early age, it could lead to a lot of confusion. So in what it looks like in K-5 to or pre-K-5 to is really starting to introduce a different ways of being, uh, that people come in, in many different ways. And, and so being culturally responsive and sustaining at the elementary school level with LGBTQ plus topics deals with exposing children to different family structures, to different, to history, how humans have, human rights movements have come into play when people's rights have been ignored or taken away. And, and this issue of it's okay to be yourself and whatever that means to you. I think these are sort of sentiments that are pretty common in elementary school, but not typically around being LGBTQ+. So in a way, when we're saying be yourself, you have the, you know, the right to, you know, everyone's different and we value differences, it's, it's kind of a disservice if we're not addressing all those types of differences, whether it's mm-hmm. having, you know, different ability or being uh, of a different race or having different interests, but also having different attractions and having different uh, gender expressions, and all those are very, very uh, common topics that kids are thinking about. It's just the sort of the fear of the adult that they might not be ready to understand that holds back many teachers from from talking about the topics that kids are are you know are coming up. When a child expresses the idea that their gender identity does not match that which they were assigned at birth, how can schools be supportive? That's a great question. And, and definitely in my own school community, we've had uh, scholars that are expressing a different gender identity than they were assigned at birth. And it's a, definitely a conversation with the families as to how to support the child. So it's a constant conversation with the families. What I've found to be very, very helpful is that the child is involved in, in the whole process. So it's not, you know, they're basically saying something that, that rings true to them. In our school, we've had the Ackerman uh, Family Foundation come in to support families uh, and also do staff training. They work with schools, organizations around gender diversity and sort of spectrum of gender and what that means and how gender really develops at what age it developmentally. 
Um, so being informed, having sort of equips you to then be able to to deal with these situations. But really, it's the the child is really uh, leading the way. I think is is the best approach. Letting them lead and 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 not putting restrictions of what we think, but rather hearing the child, really recognizing that what they're saying is, is coming from a place where it's their own knowledge of self, um, of themselves. And, and that it's, for many families, this includes having uh, networks about connecting with other families that have a trans children. So PFLAG is a great organization that connecting families in this way. There are other networks, uh, Facebook groups, and then also many, many families also work with, you know, getting with support, support groups in order to, uh, to really get informed. And sharing that with the school is very important as well. When a family is helping their child through this process, that the school also becomes another support system and is aware of everything that the child is going through. We often talk about relationships in ethical schools, and I would imagine that there must be an environment of trust at the ACE Academy in order for students to feel comfortable coming out and for other students to feel comfortable being supportive. Tell us about how you create that environment. Definitely. Um, building relationships is at the heart of any, any school that, that's going to have a long-lasting impact on students and, and their, their abilities to take risks and, and take ownership. Um, at our school, it, it begins from when you first walk in through the door and our security agent greets you. It's a, a very welcoming environment. Parents are always invited uh, and, and part of the community. Kids see that. They see that their, their families are here. Right today, for example, they were planting in the community garden tulips, uh, the bulbs, you know, with the kids during recess. It's, it begins with knowing that the adults in the building are here for kids. And, and that's not a question. But then in, in the classroom, the way it lives is, there being a lot of choice, a lot of autonomy and high expectation that's given to the child, um, where they're, they have an understanding that they're co-creating and co-constructing their learning with the teacher, as opposed to being sort of receptacles. And that is really embedded in service projects that we do in project-based learning approaches, and I think that plays a role in children really having understanding. This is, uh, a, we have a school news where children are like journalists and they, you know, cover stories and they have a lot of say. I have children that will come to me with a petition uh, about, you know, instituting something during recess or having more recess time, things that, that matter to them. So creating that culture of trust, I think, is, is key. It's, it's them knowing that if they have something to say, someone's going to listen and not just listen, but take action. Um, when it comes to LGBTQ, you know, scholars that have, have self-disclosed or have 
felt comfortable enough in their classrooms. It's because I think teachers are uh, not shying away from these topics. On every floor of our building, there's a, a rainbow flag of some sort saying, uh, you know, this yeah. space, this is a safe space. Celebrating during Pride Month. Uh, last year, we had Rainbow Day. This year, we were the second that I'm aware of, the second elementary school with a gender and sexuality alliance uh, in New York City, a club that we're calling the Rainbow Casting Club. So in a way for fourth and fifth graders to, to create initiatives around the school uh, of creating our, uh, maintaining our school as an open and safe space for, for students. So all these, you know, things together, I think, allow for, for students to feel that level of comfort. Um, and I, I would say also being a principal that puts this as a priority in sort of the agenda of culturally responsive and sustaining includes all identities. And I, and this is something that I also feel very strongly about. You're a deeper learning equity fellow. What is deeper learning and what's it mean to be a deeper learning equity fellow? Great question. So I, I've been involved with the deeper learning uh, movement for ever since I became a, a school leader. And it's really been at the heart of, the success of, of the continued success of our school, um, it basically means sort of putting the, the the skills that the children need in order to be successful at the forefront, rather than focusing on the measurement of of a standardized test. Right. So it's about critical thinking. It's about problem solving. About communicating effectively building master uh, mastering content but also having academic mindsets um and it's really about ownership and and autonomy so uh, what we've done in our school is focus more on how the learning is connected to what they might actually end up doing and focusing on what kids are doing versus you know how they're performing on a standardized test it has resulted on higher standardized testing results, but I think it's when you focus on what matters, things come as well from, from, from that. There are, I think, many things that are being taught at the school that aren't being measured, meaning by the state, but they are being measured here in the building. And I think that that's where the issue of equity in relation to deeper learning is that sometimes some schools are don't venture into a more inquiry-based, project-based approach because they feel like they're, uh, there are too many gaps to fill. Their students aren't ready for this kind of learning. And the equity piece of why this fellowship was has been critical for my learning and professional development is that it pushes a school leader to have the high expectation that this type of learning isn't for some kids and not for others. It's not just for children that might have taken a test and said that they were gifted and talented, but it's for the child that might have an IEP. It's for the child uh, in the general ed classroom without having taken a test. And sometimes that's not the case. Um, and all of that is sort of 
feeds the narrative of sort of you when you use something a standard a standard metric to define a child to define what can happen and what can't happen um, so the deeper learning movement really has seeks to give children access to the type of education that many of us uh, would want our children to have you know where what they're learning is connected to the real world where they're learning skills that will soft skills as well as the academic skills that will make them successful in the 21st century such you know being able to debate a topic not just in writing but also uh, spoken word being able to present their learning in digital ways but also in you know within groups having collaborated and also to have high content knowledge where science and social studies aren't being ignored because we need to get them to pass a reading and math test. So no music is taught, no art, you know, visual arts and gets ignored because they're not seen as relevant. And I think in connection to, to being culturally responsive uh, and sustaining art, music, dance, theater, all these you know, sort of other subjects are, are critical to, to really having a, a, hol- a holistic education. They're not isolated. So part of deeper learning is, is making the connections between core content and, and these other subjects that, that sometimes don't see the light of day in some schools. And that's an equity issue. Mm-hmm. Are you able to use any externally developed curriculum packages or do the teachers really have to design these programs in order to to be project-based and inclusive? That's a great question. The teachers have to have the ability to look at already existing curriculum and and determine whether it's culturally responsive and sustaining, whether it is rigorous enough. But in order to be to push the envelope and be more project-based or inquiry-based in, in curriculum, there has to be a level of design because there is no out-of-the-box program that, that really approaches problem-based, um, project-based learning. Um, it's, it's a philosophy, a, ma- a method. The content can come from a curriculum that maybe already has already been designed, but the lessons themselves usually don't approach the learning in a exploratory way, even though they might advertise it that way, um, you know, using a lot of buzzwords. It's definitely a one when you get deeper into the, the curriculum that, that are available by these big companies, a lot of the times they're still almost rebranding things that are, have already existed. So they're not as innovative as they, they advertise. It is a, a big ask to have teachers be designers and, and creators. That's why in our school, for example, it becomes a, a very collaborative process. Teachers have to have time to plan. That means that the school leader and the school system has to uh, respect that as a professional that's, that's being tasked with uh, not just following, but creating, that they're going to have to be given time and resources and the ability to take risks. But 
the only way that you're going to get children to do that is if the adults are doing it too. Um, just, you know, to cycle back to that same question about trust, if you're, the way you build trust is when children see something being done by the adults and, and it being, you know, ringing true. So the adults are coming into the building also smiling and happy, then they're passing that, that on to the, to the kids. Similarly, if they're being expected to create, to design, to troubleshoot, they're expecting that of their kids as well. That process then is really difficult to package and sell. And so these companies, I think, struggle with sort of programs that they know people want, but it's also dependent on the skill level of the teacher, how well they know their students. And, you know, this idea of one size fits all is sort of the, the opposite of what project-based is. It, it means that you're, you're using human capital, who's in the room and what they're interested in and how you know that they'll respond, you, know, you have a feeling they'll respond to really ignite their, their passion for learning. You've talked about the importance of getting rid of the medical model in teaching. What do you mean? Uh, well, I think there's an overemphasis on intervention, on filling gaps and assigning sort of remedial strategies in order for a child to, to sort of get on grade level. So there, there's a lot of talk about you know, analyzing data to identify the gaps so that you can group children based on their need and then you can give them a dose of a strategy for X amount of weeks. And so it, it sort of follows this medical model of, of the child is sick and we give them medicine and we monitor and then we determine whether that medicine worked or we have to apply a new one. Not to say that there, the process of analyzing data is, is not needed in education. It certainly is at the core. But the narrative that gets circulated, especially in, in communities of color or schools that, are, that might be uh, more socioeconomically disadvantaged, is that they're always in an intervention mode. The children are coming in uh, sometimes below grade level. We know if they didn't attend pre-K, if they didn't have uh, early childhood experiences like other peers, they're going to appear to be behind. So they're almost, from the moment they enter school, they're seen as a child that needs intervention. We have programs like response to intervention, which is what goes before a child is referred to special education, which is the, the, the premise is to intervene prior to being referred for potential uh, evaluation, but it's still setting up the stage for there's, there's this critical need for, for intervention. And enrichment kind of never gets talked about. Um, the intervention is double dose, triple dose of more reading instruction or more math instruction, which is what's, what they're using as the measure. So sometimes that even if the school had art, music, theater, when their child is getting pulled out for these interventions, it tends to be during those periods. 
so that they don't miss the core instruction. So it's almost uh, like a guacamole uh, guac game. You're trying to fix one thing while leaving another, and, and the focus becomes a, a deficit model. And it's very, as we know, shifting mindsets in an, any organization it has to happen if the mindset is kids can't achieve, you know, kids can't do X, Y, and Z, you have to shift the mindsets to they can, they will. But if everything that you're doing pedagogically is saying, well, they will if they have this, you know, through this intervention model, uh, it's sending the message to the teachers that you should see kids as sort of people you have to intervene in order to reach. And I, I think it's, it, it has its place, but it's, it's overemphasized. And I think we need to shift to a more holistic approach to education versus a gap-filling intervention model. I think kids sense it. They know that they're in the intervention group. They know that they're being sort of put in these, in these groups. And it's a, it's a form of pathologizing their, their learning, uh, like there's something wrong. And maybe it's the core instruction that really needs to shift and not the children. Maybe it's the resources to families or having schools that are underfunded. And if they had more funding, you wouldn't have as much need for intervention. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we haven't talked about yet? Yes, I want to thank uh, you both for having me here today and being able to share what's happening in my school. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about the research I'm doing around queer educators of color, breaking the silence in K-12 schools. I think it's something that hasn't really been researched or talked about. And I, I want to say that it's, in, it's important when creating policies that are about inclusive schools or culturally sustained, responsive and sustaining education, that these voices be, be part of the conversation. This idea of intersectional equity and groups of people that have uh, sometimes been on the margins for multiple identities and factors, I think are key to, to have at the table. Uh, and some things that I've found in, in my research thus far is that people of color that are also queer in educational spaces sometimes feel torn between being that role model as a person of color that typically is in the minority as, a, as an educator in a school, and then also being a, a potential role model as being queer. And sometimes they're, they're in conflict. And so almost like I can't be both. I have to choose which one I'm, I'm going to, to, to really be a role model for, for students, whether it's being the only black male in teaching in this school, and the kids are going to look at me as their male figure. But if I come out, that might sort of send them uh, away or not feeling like they can trust me. And this is a, a, an important factor that, that many educators, queer educators of color are, are grappling with, not sort of not undoing their potential impact by coming out. And some, some educators that I've sp spoken to that are out, of course, share how 
there's a, a door that opens up when when they they take that leap of faith and and really reveal their authentic selves to students and particularly students of color where sometimes they challenge their own familial sort of teachings uh, about what it means to be queer because now they have somebody in their life that they respect and they look up to that challenges what they might have heard around at home or in their community or even at school. And so I wanted to share that it's a topic that is layered. And as we look to schools to bring, to close gaps of inequities and really look for representation, um, I, I just, I hope that more folks start looking into the voices that are not in the room. And we know that that involves people of color, people that speak different languages, that uh, different immigration status, and also queer people that, that might also be at the intersection of all of those. Thank you so much, Jose Jimenez, Principal of ACE Academy for Scholars, PS290 in Queens. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you listeners for joining us. We'd like to hear how you've incorporated ideas you've heard on our podcast or read on the Ethical Schools blog. Please email us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. That's hosts at ethicalschools.org. Check out prior episodes and articles on our site, ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Ethical Schools and Instagram. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denti. Until next week.